Hey everyone, welcome back to The Daily Blend Show with me, Reed Daly. In episode 69, we sound off with LA-based DJ Shorty. Described as the world's premier female DJ by the Grammy Foundation, a world-renowned DJ, turntablist, and music producer, Rolling Stone magazine distinguishes her among the fader-flipping elite. Adding that, her creativity and prowess on the wheels are constantly mind-boggling. Shorty, also an instructor, record label, boss, actor, voice coach, and published author. Honored as Queen of Scratch World by DJ Times, DJ Shorty has a 25-plus year career, highlighted in series of Ladies First, her pioneering spirit, inspiring talent, and long resume of accomplishments sparks awe, gender aside. Typically, we showcase the whole interview in its entirety. This one ran a little long, so we're going to do it in two parts. We're going to do the first part this week, and then we're going to do the second part next week. It's not rocket science, people. You just download two episodes. Anyway, before we jump into the show, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe Daily Blend on all major podcast platforms. Find it on social media, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me at Reed Daily on Instagram and Twitter. And with that said, let's jump into the first part of our interview where we sound off with DJ Shorty. So let's 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 start. So first of all, we're here with uh, DJ Shorty. And do you only go by DJ Shorty, or do you sometimes go by your your first name, or is it really just DJ Shorty? Uh, either one. My real name is Shannon, and I also go by Shorty, S-H-O-R-T-E-E. <laughs> so either one and, is fine. Uh, I'm short, and my name is Shannon. <laughs> so is that how you, did you come, of, of, did you develop your DJ name because you're short, or was it just coincidence? So, well, I'm a short person, obviously, if you've ever seen <laughs> me, you'll know that. <laughs> um, but I, that was my nickname growing up in grade school. That's what people call me. And then when I started DJing in college, this was in 1995. And so back then there was no Serato. There was, you know, no way. Uh, I don't even know if there were CDJs back then. If so, they were super new. But um, there was the only way that you could scratch your name on scratch your name is if it was on vinyl. And so I went through a couple name ideas, but I kept going back to Shorty. And then I realized, oh, it's on a couple hip hop songs. I can scratch it. And so that's that solidified it. And this is before everyone started saying Shorty in their songs. So then like once 2000 hit, everyone started saying Shorty in the songs. I was like, man, I hit the jackpot. <laughs> um, so so that is why I landed on Shorty. <laughs> but yes, nice. I am short. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing you standing on like the uh, crate or, you know, those like metal crate boxes mm -hmm. from the turntables. Those flight cases were the coolest things that I had to have them. And then once you get them loaded with like, uh, you know, 1200, it is the heaviest damn thing to carry. Oh, they're terrible. So. <laughs> they're terrible. You're like, oh, they're nice and protected. And they're like, wait, I got to carry this. <laughs> but they make yeah. great tools. I stand on them all the time. <laughs> I'm, nice. I'm not cool. even joking. They're, they're my preferred really? thing to stand on. I'm like, whenever it, the setup is too short, I mean, too tall. I, I'm like, do you have any flight cases? They're like, we can get milk crates or we can build a platform. I'm like, no, no, no. Do you have flight cases for the turntables are perfect. Um, <laughs> so they're great. Nice. And you can like make them higher or lower, depending on how much height you need. <laughs> Just half of it or the full case. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Clearly, I've done so this a lot. 
<laughs> so walk us through. How did you start DJing? Like, what got you into it? So I was a drummer uh, growing up. I started playing drums and piano when I was around seven. Uh, but drums and percussion were my main, in, technically piano is a percussion instrument, but uh, drums and percussion were my main instruments going up through grade school um, and high school. I was total band geek in all like the marching band. And it wasn't cool to be in the marching band where I went to school, um, but I loved it and symphonic band and jazz band. And um, so I was total band geek uh, and I was into hip hop and electronic dance music. Uh, but I didn't respect the DJ um, as a musician because I was a classically trained musician. <laughs> I could read music, you know, and so I was like, wiki, wiki, that's so easy. Anyone can do that. I play a real instrument, <laughs> you know, because all I had seen was really simple, you know, scratching. And, and I was like, oh, they're just playing other people's music, <laughs> you know, like the snobby traditional musician's mindset basically is what I had. And then when I went to college, I was into going to raves. Um, and hip hop shows. I was also really into fish and jam bands. I followed the Grateful Dead, <laughs> um, which, by the way, is a parallel scene with the rave scene. Um, anyway, uh, like in terms of like peace, love, unity. And so it was very natural step into the electronic dance music scene for me from the jam band scene. Uh, but um, so I was into so again, aware of the DJ and I enjoyed it. And I had some friends that were DJs and I had even tried mixing at parties just for fun and I beat matched right away. So I didn't, and I was drunk and I didn't feel challenged by it. So that made me disrespect it even more. <laughs> and it was just, <laughs> I was terrible mindset about DJing until one of my friends um, uh, was like, I have a friend who's visiting. He's over at my place. He's scratching in my living room. You got to come check it out. And I'm like, whatever, wiki wiki, like anyone can do that. He's like, no, come check this out. You're going to love it. So I went over and I walked in and there was this guy and he had dreads about shoulder length uh, and he was cute. And we'll get more into that later. <laughs> uh, but he had dreads about to his shoulders and I had a dread fetish back, in, back then. And I was like, ooh, who's this guy? And he was scratching. Like I had never seen anybody scratch like this before. He was doing all these syncopated rhythms and Latin rhythms and rhythms I couldn't even play on my drums. And I was like, what is that? And you're cute, yeah. but what is that? <laughs> and um, so anyway, so that night I was playing drums in uh i had a, i was in a punk rock band back then in college and so i was playing drums in my punk rock band that night at a house party and uh that guy came to the house party and he stood behind me while i was playing my drums and i could feel him watching me and then at the end he came up to me he's like you're a really good drummer and i was like you are an right. amazing scratch dj how do you do that he's like well it's a percussion instrument you know it's it's the same i can teach you and that was a great pickup line because that was in 1995 and we've been together for 25 years. We got married in 2001. His name is DJ Faust. His real name is Bobby. And he taught me the basics of uh, mixing, scratching and beat juggling. And back then, um, there wasn't very many scratches out yet. Cause remember this is 1995. So there was no flare, there was no crab. You know, it was just like baby, release, drag, transform. Uh, scribble, you know, it, there were the technical, there was no Autobahn or, or anything like that, boomerang, yeah. nothing like that. These are advanced scratches for those that don't know that I'm mentioning. So, um, <laughs> so he taught me the basics uh, and, and the basics of beat juggling and mixing. And then, and then we learned the rest together. Um, so like oh, all cool. the new scratches we were and and I taught him, I taught him a lot about electronic dance music because he was more of a hip hop head. And so we, we ended up really complimenting each other um, in terms of our experience and expertise. And, and it really sort of morphed into 
what we are now, which is like this multi-genre um, hip hop, electronic dance music, DJ production couple. <laughs> and we go by Urban Assault now. Uh, so as a team, so if we're playing as a team, we're Urban Assault. Um, and we have a record label, Heavy Artillery Recordings, which is like a bass music, electronic dance music record label. So it's like uh, drum and bass, trap, electro house, that kind of stuff. Uh, but all that started in 1995 when I saw him scratching with his cute dreads <laughs> um, in my friend's living room. And uh, so, and that's how I started. And that's the, that's the end of the story. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's a lot how more. Did, uh, did you, <laughs> that was the have you thanked this friend for saying, come on over and hear this guy scratch? Uh, yes, many times. His name is Eric Deitch. I haven't talked to him in years, but that's that was our mutual friend. Um, nice. But yeah, and then and then so it, that was in 1995. But when I was learning, bear in mind I'm a traditional musician, right? So I'm used to re reading music theory and stuff like that. And so when Bobby was teaching me the patterns, um, I wanted a way to remember them and transcribe them. So I started creating these symbols for the scratches and for the for the rhythms and the patterns and then wrote it over traditional music theory and that I would write like you know books of these things so I could remember all my scratch patterns um and then now fast forward to teaching it's become a, a awesome teaching tool uh, especially teaching people who are musicians because then it's like it's traditional music theory is the same it's a language you're speaking their language uh, but back then that's how I remembered my patterns and so then in 1997, um, one of my friends was like really, really struggling learning the flare. And um, he was just really, really frustrated. And I had just learned the flare scratch. It's a, it's a type of scratch. And, um, and so I was like, oh, I just learned it. I'll teach you. And that was my first student. His name is Pete Babb. Uh, his DJ name is Anki. He lives in the Bay Area in Oakland. And little did I know at that time, he was going to quit DJing because he thought that scratching was a necessary skill for a hip hop DJ to have. And he was just struggling with it so much. And he was on the verge of quitting. And he said, you not taught me, I taught him a couple other scratches after that too. He's like, if you hadn't, hadn't taught me that, I wouldn't be DJing right now. I would have quit. Um, so he was huh. my first student. And then I find that teaching so early in my career, cause I was only two years in as a DJ um, myself. So, but I, it enabled me to still have that beginner's mindset which I feel has really served me as a teacher because um, it's really hard when you get really advanced at something to go back and remember how that beginner's mindset to speak pe to people on their level when they're first being introduced to something. Um, so I, I'm always thankful for Pete asking me to teach him that because it forced me to start teaching back then. And then in 1999, I released the first ever uh, DJ instructional tutorial video <laughs> in the world, <laughs> as far as I know, um, is on VHS. It's called DJ 101. It taught the basics of mixing, scratching, and beat juggling. And then we went to DVD in the year uh, 2001, and uh, and then it created a series. And so that that was actually how I started teaching. So I just told you how I started DJing and how I started teaching. That's so. That's such a great story. And, and I love this quote, uh, beginner's mindset. Like, I, I think that translates across, like, not just DJing and teaching, teaching, but just teaching in general and kind of mm -hmm. becoming a master. That's, that's such a cool thing. And in terms of the, the VHS, I mean, I saw that. I told you before <laughs> we started recording 
you know, I was an intern at DJ Times and I saw that video in one of the offices, uh, you know, that that office building has so much swag of just all like music <laughs> industry. And I would like go home with bags of CDs and rip like the, the MP3s off and then come back in the next day. So it was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> so I saw that video for sure. What was it like, like trying to decide, you know, what made you want to do a DJ instructional video? Because that people weren't doing those at the time. Did you just see a void in the marketplace? Yeah, um, because when I was learning, I was like, man, are there any any videos that teach this? Because I love Bobby. He's amazing. But he wasn't like a teacher. He was just showing me what he knew, you know, and then I was trying to find my own way to like, um, you know, digest what he was showing me and like teach myself in a way. Um, and I right. was like, why is nobody teaching this? There were no DJ schools back then. There was no YouTube. YouTube didn't exist, you know. So and the only way that you could see other DJs doing stuff and so that you could learn stuff is watching the DMC battle DJ videos, which is like um, it, for those that are listening that don't know what DMC is, it's like one of the biggest DJ battles in the world. And back then it was the biggest and they would make these VHS tapes of the battles. And so you'd be so lucky if you could get your hands on one of those VHS tapes to like see what because the battle DJs were on the forefront of all the new stuff. And so you'd like want to see what they were doing. And back then it was like the Scratch Pickles and the Beat Junkies. And our crew was third world citizens. And so in my crew, it was Craze, DJ Craze, who's six time uh, DMC champion. He won it three times solo, three times team. Clever was in our crew, Shotgun, King James, T-Rock, Faust, and myself. Um, so we were in a DJ crew. So we were up with the DJ crews, but you couldn't, unless you were in the room with them, you couldn't see it unless it was on a VHS tape. And so, and and it was like trying to figure out what they were doing by watching it. And before that, the way Bobby learned, because he started, he's a little older than me, he's three years older than me. And when he started DJing, he was 13. And he would listen to records <laughs> and try to figure out what Jazzy Jeff is doing on He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper, just by listening to it or, or like doing the transform, you know, like, and he's like, how is he making that sound? And so when, I, as I was learning, I was, and I started teaching my friends and I was like, someone needs to make a video about this. <laughs> and so, uh, and at the time I was also a struggling artist, you know, we were touring, but I was still coming up in, in my career. Um, so I was like, we also have to find a way to make some extra money. So I was like, I'll make an instructional video. And so we filmed it in our living room. <laughs> it was so grassroots. We borrowed someone's high eight camera. Like this was, you know, in the late nineties. So, um, there was no smartphone <laughs> or anything that you yeah. could film it on. And I still have yeah. it. And it's, it, it's so embarrassing to watch <laughs> because, but, but, you know, my on-camera skills were terrible and, um, but, but it was the first ever of anyone doing that, teaching, mixing, scratching, and beach juggling. There was a couple videos that taught some scratch skills, but not all the elements of DJing. Um, and so that was the first. And then after it, we sold hundreds of those crusty VHS tapes. <laughs> um, and so then that's when we, I, we refilmed the whole thing properly. I got a film person um, to film it and edit it at the time because I didn't know how to do it at that time. And uh, then we made a DVD series, but it all started with the void in the market and me being like, I wish I had this because I, right. I, I wanted a structured way of learning something from a, someone that could actually explain and articulate things step by step. And I was like, nobody's doing it. So I need to do it. <laughs> um, but I 
thoroughly enjoy it. And I used to teach um, martial arts. I'm a black belt. I got my black belt in high school and I used to teach martial oh, cool. arts. And so that was my first teaching experience was teaching martial arts. So I sort of, I, I already knew certain things about how, you know, how to teach and how to articulate different things step by step. And so I started using that experience and transferring it over to DJing. And I think that really served me that and the beginner's mindset together, I think really yeah. served me. And then my passion for teaching has always been equal if not more than my passion for DJing. Now, as I'm older, I'm much older, because <laughs> um, that was 25 years ago. Now, my passion is, I'm way more passionate about teaching than actually going out and DJing in clubs, because mm -hmm. I feel like I can make more, I can touch more people when I teach, because if I teach you, and then you show someone else, and then the light just spreads, rather than me DJing at a club, and yes, there's one night, but it's not like they're transferring that energy somewhere else or showing other people. So it stops in the club yeah. to me, you know, um, and it, there, it's totally different experience, but I really like the nerdiness of teaching <laughs> and, and, and just like, there's something about that process that really lights me up and just the connection and really seeing someone like, I love to make the crowd, you know, go crazy at a club. And that's a great feeling. But it's more of like it's an about me feeling like, oh, they really like what I'm doing and and we're I'm creating this energy and we're all connected and that's great. Uh, but when I'm teaching someone, it's like I totally get off at seeing that person, the light bulb go off and it's all about them. And that to me, mm. I get goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. That, and that's a tell for my body. If I get goosebumps all over my body, I know I'm in my zone. <laughs> um, and that's cool. what I get when I'm teaching people is just like. Yeah, just seeing the light bulb go off and and seeing them get it and then seeing them grow and progress and 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 see where they take it and then they teach other people or they dj other places and then the light just spreads um actually our mutual yeah. friend analyze learned the flare from the dj 101 dvd i don't know if she told you or the actually it was the vhs tape the original vhs tape that's how she no learned the flare before i even met her i met her at nam uh which is a music convention uh, but she learned. And so it was crazy when I first did the videos and then getting the feedback from people, people that I didn't know coming up and granted again, no YouTube. So there's no comment section or any sort of feedback. You don't know right. what you're doing is doing anything until people come right, up to right. you at a show out of the blue. And they're like, thank you so much. You taught me how to DJ. <laughs> and that awesome. that is the best feeling. So, so yeah. That's so now cool. I'm way more passionate about teaching than I am actually DJ. I'll still DJ gigs and I love, especially love playing drum and bass. And of course I love scratching. Scratching is something I'll always be doing, but teaching is, is, is my, my jam. <laughs> is your thing? Mm -hmm. So tell, tell me a little bit about, so for your crew and just kind of being on the road, like what was it like? Cause, cause it must've been hard just planning and executing being on the road, right? Like we didn't have smartphones. Like mm -hmm. how did you go about, either getting gigs or even going on tour, whatever form that was. Like, how did you plan that? Did you have a team? Were you working, you know, by yourself to do a lot of these things with the, like the different kind of promoters? How did that work and how has that changed for you? Oh, it's changed considerably. But back in the nineties, like it was just like, you know, it just started really organically. When I started, we were playing, 
uh, parties in my apartment to pay for rent, <laughs> you know, to raise rent money. And then people would hear, and then we play local, I was in college, so we play college parties. And I say we, because it was myself and my husband we'd be playing. And then we did a lot of raves in that area. We were really into the rave scene. We played progressive house and breaks and, um, and so, and techno and stuff like that and hard house. And then eventually it evolved into drum and bass. Uh, but we were, it was all organic, just like through the rave scene. And back then you could play, We the hip hop we played was more instrumental, um, obscure beats and breaks, uh, funk and stuff like that. It wasn't so um, about, it, it wasn't like rap is today and hip hop is today. Right. And so there was a market for that back then. And we could play at raves where we play in the hip hop room and then we play the main stage in techno or something like that. And so that we got to straddle that line for a while. And in terms, and then it eventually went, you know, we got out of, we were in Southwestern Virginia at that time because I was going to college at Radford University. And then we would play the surrounding states and eventually we moved to Atlanta. And then that's when we got in our DJ crew uh, with the people I mentioned before. And then around that time, 1997, Faust produced Man or Myth. And Man or Myth uh, was his first uh, solo album that he featured myself, DJ Craze, and Shotgun on. And that was all our first time on record, his and mine. And it was actually just intended to be like this crazy mixtape like really really cut up though like uh, any echoes you heard were done by hand on the mixer like you'd raise the volume and mm. then you'd lower it a little and you'd lower a little it's all done with scratching any drums would be scratched in by hand and it was oh. made on a yamaha eight track we, we weren't producing on computers and it was just two turntables and a yamaha eight track and a beat up mtx dj mixer <laughs> and this was no just way. intended to be like a like a cool a uh, really extravagant kind of mixtape in a way, uh, but like all pieced together, puzzle piece. And Dave, um, what? Oh, I can't remember. His name. Dave Tompkins was a, a writer. I don't, I don't remember what. I think he wrote for Herb. Remember Herb magazine? Uh, he wrote for a bunch I of magazines. Herb. But um, he put this mixtape on his answering machine. <laughs> and yes, this was in the nineties. So. We had answering machines back then with the cassette tape in there, and he put it as his message when someone called. That's what they'd hear <laughs> to leave a message. And he was a writer. He wrote for magazines like Herb. He might have even written for DJ Times. Um, but then Dave Paul from Bomb Records called him about you know something about writing or something. Heard the message on the answering machine, and then then was like, "What is that? I want to sign it. I want to put it out on my label." And that is how. No way. Faust got the record deal with Bomb Records. And then that was also the first turntablist album because it's a turntablist album, meaning any it's produced solely from scratching things in, right? So it's not like sequenced or produced in like a computer or anything like that. It's all by hand. And so it's a very, it was the first turntablist album ever in history uh, that was released oh, wow. on Bomb Records. And then I released, and then after that, we released the Fathomless EP with Craze, myself, and Faust. It was a joint EP. Um, it was experimental. And then there on that, we also, it was a turntable EP, but we also used the SP-1200 on that as a drum machine, a classic hip hop drum machine. And then I released my first solo album, The Dreamer, which is the first and only that I know of turntablist album by a female. And so I say all this to, to, to answer your question about touring, because that's how we really got out. It was, we were doing local or like 
states around Atlanta. We lived in Atlanta at the time. So we were doing Tennessee and, you know, Florida and, and um, the yeah. Carolinas and stuff like that. But we didn't get and we I'm from the D.C. Baltimore area. So we would go up there a lot and, and DJ. But it was just like that area on the East Coast once in a while, New York. Uh, and so we, and we had a booking agent that was helping us get those bookings, but uh, most of it was just word of mouth, us and email. Thank goodness email existed back then. <laughs> so we could email, but it wasn't until the album started coming out. That's when we were able to broaden our scope as, uh, performers and get out of our region of that East coast, mostly Southeast area. And, um, our first tour was a U.S. tour. It was the fathomless tour for that EP because Bobby toured for Man or Myth, but I didn't go on that tour with him. So my first tour was on the Fathomless tour. Uh, and so we toured the US and then we toured Europe. We did the European tour. And so yeah. pr the production was the conduit to making those connections back then. Because again, no social media. So you needed to do something to get people's attention and print magazines were where it was at. So we really hammered getting reviews, um, g making relationships with writers. Like I was uh, uh, Jim Tremaine from DJ Times, uh, you know, Dave Tompkins uh, from Herb Magazine. Actually, Pete Babb, the guy that I talked about, that was my friend that I taught him how to flare. He was also a writer. He wrote for Herb and Vice. Um, so we had a lot of friends. We befriended not, you know, organically, not like just being like weird about it, like only wanting to use them. We organically befriended um, yeah. writers as our friends. And then it was like a collaboration. They needed to write for their magazines. We kept creating content for them to write about tours or events or um, productions or whatever. And that is how we were able to create a healthy touring career. So yes, That's we had cool. an agent, but that is not how we got all our bookings. How we got our bookings was making content in the way that you make content in the 90s and uh, networking in the way that you network in the 90s, which is um, making friends with writers so that they can you know, because that's free advertisement. Back then we were broke. So it wasn't like we were putting out ads in Herb Magazine, but we would get that article or or that review or whatever. And that is that was money. And that's how we toured back then. But now it's, it's you know, of course, so totally different. It's a lot easier to reach people. But back then you had to be really resourceful. Huh. I, so I, I was in Atlanta at the same time you guys were. Um, and I would go into like stores like Wish it was up yes. in the mall, but it was up in the mall. So it's down in Little Fives now. Little Fives. So up in, uh, yeah, before though, the original Wish it was called something else. It was up in, um, not Norcross, but further north. And then it moved down to that killer like uh, store it's in right now. But I would buy like all the, you know, I was a couple years younger and I was seeing all like the rave flyers. I was like, oh, I can't yes. wait to go to one of these things. <laughs> That was like, it was the coolest thing to just see, you know, be able to like touch a flyer and you're just like, oh my God, I feel so connected to this industry and I'm only holding a flyer. But yeah, it was, it was cool to see kind of Atlanta sort of go into the like kind of interesting where it was a cross between jam band people, hip hop and like rave culture, or at least yeah. that's my perception. Little time. Five Points, yeah, Little Five Points was awesome too. When they moved Wish to Little Five Points, they had satellite records underneath the store That's in what the it basement. Was. Tommy Sunshine it was worked there. Records. Yep. Tommy yep. Sunshine worked there. And um, and so that's where we got tons of our that's where I got a lot of my um 
favorite records from back then. And then also Rewind Records opened up like around, around the block. The corner. All the record stores yep, were there. Yep. Wax and Fax was there. And that was like a, a like a dusty grooves kind of place where you get you know, like your right. funk and your soul and your rare grooves. Um, but Rewind Records was around the corner. And that I worked at Rewind Records. So that was like the typical oh, really? DJ thing to do was to work at a record store. And I sold a ton of my instructional DVDs <laughs> there. Um, but that was the other thing going around what you were talking about, trying to get gigs and stuff and how we did that. Also selling a product like an instructional DVD or even CDs in general, like mixtapes or whatever. Um, and when I say mixtapes, I mean actual mixtapes. Okay. <laughs> um, and then mix CDs eventually. Um, but we would go around to all the record stores. We would go to Satellite, of course, Rewind where I worked. Um, and pedal my videos <laughs> and our CDs <laughs> to make money. So, but that also helped with bookings because whenever we were in another city, we'd be like, where are the record stores? Uh, and then we go and we pedal our wares <laughs> and then they'd pick them up and they carry them. And whether it was a mix CD or an instructional video, people would, you know, purchase them and then they'd hear about us and then we get more bookings in that area. You know what I'm saying? So that was another way to get bookings, to physically go in, meet, create relationships with the people at the record store so that they reorder also. And then, you know, you make some some money. It wasn't like we were getting rich off it, but you know, you make a little money, but it was ultimately about that um, awareness and spreading, spreading your name around so that you can create more awareness to, you know, blow up a bit, a bit bigger. Yeah, I, you know, you bring up Satellite Records. So I remember going to Satellite Records so I had to borrow my parents' car to drive down there and like buy, I had no money. So buy like one record at a time, you know, it was like a 30 minute, 40 minute drive and they get it. But I remember like the internet was starting to happen and they had a really bad website, but they were like at a store in Boston, Atlanta and New York. I, was yep, like, I yep. can't wait to go to all the stores. And I ended up going to college in New York city or in, in a surrounding borough. And I would shop at Satellite. I was like, all right, I've been to two out of the three. Can't wait to get up to Boston. And then like the record, like physical vinyl, like ended when I was in college. It just like <laughs> that store closed. I was like, no, oh, this is no. such a great experience. So anyway, but uh, yeah. So how did you go from being in Atlanta and kind of, you know, being in a group with uh, Craze and Clever, et cetera, like, because you're on the West Coast now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I live in LA now. So how did so how I go did from guys... Atlanta? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we lived in Atlanta for seven years. We're, uh, I should preface this by saying we're originally, both of us are originally from the DC, Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. So we had a lot of connections up there. Uh, and then we moved to Atlanta because I transferred from uh, Radford University to the Art Institute of Atlanta, which is an art school. And that's where I got my degree in 3D animation and graphic design. And we lived there for seven years, and and it was a and it was a, a really rich time in our both of our careers where we were growing a lot. We were meeting tons of people. We were in our DJ crew. That crew, I I'm so grateful for the chance to be in the crew with Craze and Clever and and Faust and stuff because number one, I, or I was the only girl, and I was the youngest DJ experience wise, not age wise. So it was really hard. Um, because they wouldn't let me be the token female. And so it was really, it was a lot of tough love. And like, I had to work my ass off, but it's because of that 
time in my life. Um, and Atlanta was a great city to be able to do that because it wasn't too big of a pond, especially back then, you know? Um, yeah. And so, um, but it had a great thriving scene. Um, and so I worked my ass off and I learned like, you know, Craze is like battling in DMCs at the time. He hadn't won yet. And so like he's putting together his routines and then I would learn as he's doing it. He'd show me what he's doing. Same with Clever and of course Faust. Uh, and uh, my other crewmates. So I learned so much back then and I had to work really hard. And that is, um, I feel like what has given me, given me sustainability today, that work ethic, and also just like not being able to rest on my laurels, not being able to just look cute behind the decks and that be it, you know, like you, I had to come correct with skills. Um, right. And so that was a, a really important time in my life that I'm super grateful for. I'm super grateful for the the males that taught me because a lot of dudes would not teach a female because uh, they're like, no, this is my thing. Go, go like put on your makeup or play with dolls or, you know, whatever, <laughs> like, especially back then technology is intimidating and, and stuff like that. So I was really, really um, fortunate to have such a supportive boyfriend who wanted to collaborate with me musically um, and show me stuff. And then also my crewmates, but at the same time, they weren't letting me just get a free ride. Like I had to work. And so that was around that time in Atlanta. And so I really, really am grateful also for my time in Atlanta because it was one of those things that was not such a big of a pond, but we could, we could, you know, grow our careers. It was still a metropolitan city, right? And so at yeah. around seven years, to answer your question, we became a big fish in a small pond. And we knew that we had to, in order to grow any further at that time, because Atlanta back then, uh, was not, and this is like 2004, it wasn't what it is now. Right. And so back right. then the, uh, like we had to broaden our scope. So it was either New York or LA. And, um, uh, there's two reasons why we chose LA. I love New York, but Bobby doesn't like the cold. <laughs> uh, he's Puerto Rican. I'm not sure if that's why he doesn't like the cold, but he doesn't like the cold. So that was already New York was out of the question. But then also one of our good friends is DJ Z trip. Um, he's a, a really dope, um, open format DJ turntablist. Um, he's also the DJ for LL Cool J now, but anyway, DJ Z trip, uh, and his name, his name is Zach and we played with him often and stuff, but he had just moved to LA like a, a year prior, a couple of years prior. And he was saying like, you guys got to move out here. You guys got to move out here. By the way, he also DJed our wedding. <laughs> he scratched me down no the way. aisle. <laughs> yeah. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he played like uh, like he scratched me down the aisle with like the traditional wedding song. And then at the end on the walk out um, and he was lined up with his turntables and the groomsmen. He was a groomsman, too. But it was all like the a presentation. And then on the way out, um, he put a Timbaland beat over a, the traditional wedding song, made like a funky wedding song and scratched <laughs> scratched us out. And then he DJed the reception. He had my grandma dancing to do in the butt. Uh, we did the first scratch before the first dance. He called us up to scratch. But anyway, he was a good friend. And so he just kept telling us, you got to move out here. You got to move out here. So then we eventually moved out to L.A. Uh, with our uh, cats. We had two cats at the time in a car in our U-Haul, drove across the country. And we had tried to move out to L.A. a, a lot. Uh, of times, but financially, we weren't just, like anytime we made a, up enough money to make that big move, something would happen, you know. And again, we're this DJing was our living. We didn't have side jobs like this. We were all in, so that was a. It's like a roller coaster, you know. It's a struggle being a struggling yeah. artist at that time. Um, and so I got this really dope opportunity uh, to play to do a fifty city tour for Playboy for their fiftieth anniversary tour. 
I was their DJ. I was the most clothed female at the events. <laughs> I was never a playmate. Um, but I was their DJ on this tour. And it was a great opportunity to, for me to first tour the country on a bus. That was amazing. Um, and, and tour all the, all 50 States and, and play this amazing tour, but then also make enough money. And that's how we moved in a short amount of time. It was a five month tour. And then right after that, and we made connections because Playboy of course is based out in LA. Um, and so that, that also helped, um, be a conduit to our move. And that's how we moved out here. I, we made enough money on that tour and we've lived here since the October, 2004. And we've actually lived here longer than we've lived anywhere else in our lives, either of us. <laughs> so it's oh, really wow. weird. Like wow. when, as you get older and you start to see like, wow, I've lived here for 16 years and I've never lived anywhere that long. <laughs> like, I don't know about you. When I grew up, I bounced around a lot. So my parents, you know, my parents were divorced and we lived in a lot of different areas and same with my husband. So, um, so to be in one place for this long is crazy. Um, and so we consider LA our home, but we're still East coasters at heart too. So we got the best of both worlds. <laughs> I, I'm slightly different East Coast for for kind of up and down, but now I live in Chicago, so I, I feel I oh, feel nice. somewhat of your your feelings there. Yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning in to episode. All right. Thanks for tuning into part one of the DJ Shorty Sound Off interview. We will have part two next week. Uh, I will include all of DJ Shorty's social links in the post on dailyblend.com, also in the show notes. And as always, don't forget to like, follow, subscribe Daily Blend on all major podcast platforms. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Like, follow, subscribe on Instagram and Twitter. And check me out on Instagram and Twitter. That's at Reed Daily, R-E-E-D-D-A-I-L-E-Y. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.